Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we're going to start with a riddle. A father and son get in a severe car accident and both are badly hurt. An ambulance arrives and takes them to separate hospitals. When the boy is taken in for emergency surgery, the surgeon says, I can't operate on him because this boy is my son. How is this possible? The answer is the surgeon is the boy's mother. Had you heard that riddle before? I remember hearing it as a kid, and my mind was blown when I heard the punchline. And the fact that that joke is still in circulation and that it still flummoxes people is a commentary on how we view or don't view women in positions of power in our society. Our author today is famed Cambridge University professor Mary Beard. And in her book, Women and Power, a Manifesto, She writes that despite the fact that there are more women in leadership positions than there used to be, quote, our mental cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male. If we close our eyes and try to conjure up the image of a president or to move into the knowledge economy, a professor, what most of us see is not a woman. And that is just as true even if you are a woman professor. The cultural stereotype is so strong that at the level of those close-your-eyes fantasies, it is still hard for me to imagine me or someone like me in my role. End quote. So we are going to discuss Women in Power, a Manifesto today, and I am so excited to dig into this amazing book. But before we begin, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Louisa Gillette. Welcome, Louisa. Thank you. I'm so happy and excited to be here. I'm so happy and excited to have you here. Uh, Louisa and I are both in the Masters of Liberal Arts program at Stanford. And I have to say, we're not in the same cohort, but I started just hearing about this person named Louisa from everybody. Like, have you met Louisa yet? Oh, I was in a class with Louisa. And Louisa said, um, and she kind of gained this reputation. So by the time I met you, Louisa, I must admit I was a little intimidated by your your reputation. I heard Louisa Gillette is an intellectual with a capital I and all kinds of praise about how um, not only amazingly brilliant you are, but also just the most lovely person. And I've been just so delighted to get to know you and to become friends in the last little while. So I'm just thrilled that you were willing to do this episode with me. And it's just been so fun to discuss this book um, in conversation prior to recording today. So I'm, I'm super excited. And that I wondered. so kind of you, Amy. Oh. Thank you. It's, I mean, I have to say, um, not to have some kind of, sort of mutual bath of appreciation here, but the same thing happened to me. People would say, have you been in a class with Amy? I oh. really enjoy it. I think you two really, you know, have very interesting ways of seeing the world. And you, have you been in a class with Amy yet? And I'd be like, who is this Amy woman? Uh, so <laughs> it's been really nice to get to know you. Yeah. Oh, how well, how kind. And now you're making me blush. So now I know how I make other people feel when I gush and they say, stop talking about me. And now I'm feeling this, oh. this, the same way. Um, but could you begin our episode as we always do? I like to ask reading partners a little bit about themselves. So if you could just tell us who you are and where you're from and just a little bit about you, that would be great. Sure. So my name is Louisa Gillette. And as you can probably hear from my voice, I am English. Um, My mother is black. She is originally from Nigeria. And she grew up in, I guess, you know, Nigeria was a colony of England. And so she grew up in something a bit like the late Victorian era 
the equivalent. It was really uh, quite an interesting culture that she was immersed in. And she was a very upper class, is, she's still alive, a very upper class Nigerian and um, very proud of that. Uh, and my father is a white Englishman from a completely different um, slice of the social strata, whereas her father was a civil servant and got given an OBE by the Queen. His father was a chimney sweep and a school caretaker. Um, so issues around class and race were, you know, they were woven into my life from when I was really small. But I think I did actually grow up relatively unaware of the issues of patriarchy, uh, probably because they were masked by race. Um, partly because my mum is such a strong woman, because she grew up in this amazing environment where she was really at the she was really at the top of a pile socially, uh, and uh, she really didn't feel like she had to apologise for anything or to anyone. Um, but she was a teacher, uh, and that wasn't always easy. It wasn't easy to be a black person teaching in a predominantly white school. Uh, people didn't necessarily accept you back in those days in the 60s and 70s. You know, I can remember her coming home exasperated or angry at what she was dealing with, and it would be something like a white parent calling her the N-word and threatening to set their dog on her. Uh, when she went around to see why the kid hadn't been coming to school, and that, you know that that was that was life for her oh in England goodness. in the sixties and seventies, and you know it was asking taxis to stop for you and having them spit and and drive past. It could be it could be pretty extreme. So when I was a kid, the consciousness of difference and inequity I had was really formed more along those lines. And I went to um, I went to an all girls school. Sounds so incredibly old fashioned now when I think about it. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you wanted to be a nerd, no one cared. So science wasn't a boys' subject because there weren't any boys. You could just do what you wanted. Mm. Um, so I, I think I, I grew up in some ways feeling quite quite free in the sense of patriarchy. But it, these expectations of what a woman is and what a woman can do they're always part of a water that we're swimming in and I do I, I went to Oxford University which was fancy and nice had a great education um, and I remember um, thinking as I got through my my three years there I was like wow you know if I really want to do well in my final exams you, the, the examination system by which you get your degree is just endless exams it was two weeks where you just sit six hours of exams every day it's like a hmm some kind of marathon thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I was really clear that I needed to think and to talk and to write like a man in order to do well and be successful. Mm. And I remember having this big argument with a, a gay male friend of mine who thought that was just a disgusting thing to do. He was like, well, why would you, why would you do that? It's a real betrayal of yourself. And uh, <laughs> I'm a bit ashamed at this point, so I didn't really care. I just thought, well, that's just how I'm going to get what I want. And it doesn't mm. bother me. It's it's just how it is. So I think at that point, I was quite a long way from <laughs> from uh, what you might call an awakening of feminist consciousness. So you actually, I mean, you really were aware at that age. So you were, what, like 21 at the time, and you just thought it was really gendered for you in your mind? So it was, but... yeah, it was really clear to me. So what it was, was uh -huh. because we had these um, exams, and it is, it's like this you know, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, do it over and over again. Uh, hmm. No tech, no books. You've well. just got to memorize it all and you've got to do it. Um, and I, I I, just knew what they wanted and what mm -hmm. they wanted. Or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe if I had written in a different way, it would all have 
been just as fine. But I felt that what they wanted was this very strong voice of conviction that said, this is the way it is, and acknowledged that there might be other points of view, but then demolished those other points of view in order to kind of present the argument. It's like like a like an adversarial system, like the system you have in, in courts of law, that kind of thing. And that to me wasn't it wasn't really how I saw the world even then. I, I tend to see things from lots of different perspectives, but I didn't think that was going to work very well in that environment. So I guess by that point I'd already internalized this idea of what a powerful voice or a voice that you're going to listen to sounds like. And I felt that it was male. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that's interesting because, I, I mean, as I'm picturing you at Oxford and I, I'm thinking back to Virginia Woolf and A Room of One's Own and that, I mean, I think Virginia Woolf's brothers went to Oxford but or Cambridge, I don't remember, but she wasn't allowed to go at that time because she was a woman. And we just did an episode a few weeks ago on how the Ivy Leagues and the, the you know, the highest level schools in England were made co-educational and and finally accepted women it wasn't that long ago i mean so the fact that you still sensed that that it was a very masculine model that you were participating in i guess it's not surprising considering the history it had just been a couple of decades <laughs> ago that women weren't even sitting in those rooms taking those exams right and yeah and i taking- think i don't want to be unfair because it wasn't like anyone ever sat me down and said, look, you're a woman. And that's just, you know, it's right. kind of hopeless, isn't it? Um, I had a brilliant time. I had incredibly supportive teachers. No one ever, no one ever said that to me. It was just like this feeling I had. But that mm-hmm. was in the end when, when, when they sat down and marked your exam papers and they couldn't see your name, couldn't see your gender. You just had like a number. Mm. But that was, that was what they wanted. And it was only, mm-hmm. it had only been a couple of decades. You know, these had been essentially like sort of, They'd come out of a monastic system, and and it was mm. really radical when women turned up. In another organisation I worked for later in life as a as a board member was the British Antarctic Survey, which is an amazing organisation. It's partly um, a kind of offshoot of a foreign office. It protects British uh, interests in the Antarctic, but it's mainly a scientific organisation doing British research in the Antarctic. Uh, and they had women scientists out there, you know, and I went out there to look at infrastructure and inspect ships and amazing stuff like that. But the women only wow. arrived in Antarctica as research scientists after the dogs left. <laughs> oh gosh! So up until up until like the the I think it was like the early seventies or mid seventies, they were still using dogs to um, pull equipment and to pull food. And this is an incredibly unhospitable environment. It's one of the most mm-hmm. unhospitable places on the whole planet. Uh, and there came a point when it just seemed like, well, we have machines now that can do that, and and it's not appropriate to use dogs anymore. And a couple of years after that. Everyone sort of got a bit lonely <laughs> at that point. <laughs> at that point, sort of women, you know, arrived as a scientist, and it's not, you know not as concubines, but as scientists. There's nothing untoward about it. It's just it always no. stuck in my mind. It was interesting. It's like, well, when they lost the dogs, they kind of went, oh well. You know, <laughs> What's <they> left? Women. <laughs> What's left? Oh dear. Oh man. Oh, that is funny. I love it. Okay, tell us a little bit about what did you do after Oxford? What what have you yeah. done as a career? So I did a few, well, I did many different things. I mainly worked as a TV producer and then a TV commissioner in broadcasting. And especially as a commissioner, it's quite a powerful job. You have really quite large budgets and you're making decisions about what kinds of programs get shown on TV. And, you know, England is really small. At, at, at that point, it did have 
some cable and satellite channels, but basically there were four channels that people watched. So if you were commissioning programs for one of those four channels, then maybe six or seven million people were going to watch one of your programs if if it was a program that was popular. So it was quite influential. Um, and it was a really interesting environment because actually there are a lot of women who work in media. It's one of those... Um, it's one of those sectors where uh, it's really normal to have women, but uh, the pyramid, the gender pyramid is quite sharp. So the higher up the pyramid you go, the fewer women you see. Um, and that, that again, it, it's, uh, you start to notice things. You notice that, um, that when men start a family, they're having a baby, they get a pay rise. And when women start a family and they're having a baby, they go on maternity leave and then their job might something it might just become a slightly funny shape or maybe not mm. quite exist in the way it did before when they come back. Um, and I met some amazing women, really incredible women who did their jobs fantastically well. But I also saw um, that some of the women who were succeeding, who were really powerful, they were really playing men at their own game and just doing it better. Uh, in terms of aggression and workaholism and ruthlessness. And I was looking for role models, but they, they were, to be honest, a bit thin on the ground. It's very interesting for me now that I'm quite a long way out of the workplace. I haven't, I haven't worked um, for money since my daughter was about two and she's seven now. And it's really interesting to look back and you, and you realise how things that you took for granted and just accepted as completely normal, that maybe they... Maybe they could be challenged. Maybe they could mm. be improved. Maybe they could be better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now mm. my daughter's seven and I'm in grad school at Stanford because after she turned about two, we moved from England to California for my husband's work. And it was just a massive change for us. You, you arrive in a new country and you don't know anyone and you have no family and you, you just don't understand you, things. <laughs> I remember <laughs> once we went to pick up a chair that we'd... Um, I found on Craigslist, I was desperate for a rocking chair because my daughter didn't sleep. She'd never been mm. asleep. Uh, and the woman said, oh, we're on the first floor. So we went oh. and, uh, we went into this apartment block uh-huh. and we got into a lift and, and we pressed the button over and over again and nothing happened. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes, she phoned me. She was like, are you coming? I was like, well, your lift is broken. It's broken. Uh, and she, she was like, oh, come downstairs. And when she came downstairs and she got in the lift and she pressed a button and the lift worked. We were like... We looked uh-huh. at her like she just like sprouted wings or something. Imagine she said, "Well, what button were you pressing?" Uh-huh. And we'd been pressing number one because right. we wanted to go up to what we call the first floor. But the first right. floor here is the ground floor, and the G stands for garage. And literally, we were so green, we just couldn't even make a, <laughs> we couldn't even shift an elevator. So uh. I just, I decided at that point, okay, I'm going to step back because I really have to, uh, not have to in a. Someone has said you are a woman and you must look after your family. But it's like, no, this, this is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do to step back and really think about uh, domestic affairs. But I love books and I love a life of mine. So I ended up going back to school and I'm currently at Stanford at grad school, which is how we got to know each other. That's right. Okay. And the other question that I like to ask my reading partners is just about the term breaking down patriarchy, kind of what it means to you or why you agreed to do an episode of the podcast, kind of however however you want to interpret that question. Yeah. I I think for me, it was really once my daughter was born and you start to think about the future that this little life is going to have and, and what you want 
the opportunities you want for them. Uh, and it really, I think it really accelerated my awareness of the things which she could potentially have to deal with just on account of being female. Uh, and also, I think that transition as a woman from being, you know, a professional with this huge budget and people coming, uh, sort of coming to plead with you, please give me money so I can make this program. Um, that That's your life one minute and then the next minute your life is... It's nappies, diapers, you call them, and it's um, and it's chasing chairs on Craigslist because your daughter won't sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden, you kind of look around and go, "Wow, well, we've had a baby." And you know, my husband's—he's an amazing man. I am not criticizing him at all. He's been incredibly supportive. It's great, and he's actually done lots of lots of things to improve uh, possibilities for women in engineering in the field he works in, which is tech. Hmm. But you, you, you look. I looked around at me, and I looked around at, at my friends, and we were all sort of having kids about the same time. Just notice this just drastic change in the lives of women, and this really undrastic change in the lives of men. Hmm. Uh, and and it, you question it, and you think, well, you, why is it like this? Does it have to be like this? Uh, I'm very sensitive to waste like wasted potential, whether it's because of gender or class or ethnicity or economics. I, I just have this sense of, of injustice when I see things that people can't access when they have potential. Um, and I think that combination of motherhood, especially because I was a mum relatively late, I think I was 38 or 39 when our daughter was born, uh, and so it's a really it's a really significant period of your life in which to get used to being a, a professional a professional person. Um, and I, you know, when we decided to move to America, and I had to get all my my passports updated and all that kind of stuff. I remember going to a passport office to get a new passport, and I decided to take my husband's surname simply for the pragmatics of when you do a lot of air travel and you travel with a kid and you're not traveling as a family and we weren't always going to be traveling all three of us together if you don't share a surname with your child it can be really tricky uh, immigration um they're worried that people might be taking children for the wrong reasons and i understand that um but it's an experience i know a lot of people have had so i was like okay i'm going to take my husband's uh, family name so we're all under the same uh, name umbrella uh, but I still wanted a record of my my maiden name in my passport because that was a name under which I'd been, you know, a really senior person in broadcasting. I presented radio documentaries for the BBC. I'd been a regulator as well. I'd done all sorts of things with my life. Uh, and passport office just said to me, well, you can't, you know, mm. you, you, you've got a different name now. I said, what do you mean you can't? <laughs> and we had one of those moments, which I'm not necessarily that proud of, but we had one of those, well, I need to see your supervisor moments. Um, mm. uh, and in the end, I got what I wanted. So my passport says, also known as Louisa Bolch, which makes mm. me sound like a spy or like an international <laughs> woman of mystery. But it's just like, no, no, it's just, it's just, that's, that's my professional credentials mm-hmm. in that name if you google my married name you don't really find very much because that's not mm. that's not where my life was um so i think all these all these things create created for me um a kind of awakening of this 
this sense that we need we need some change. We need some significant social change in the power structures of society. And I don't just think that's for me and my friends and my little girl and other little girls. I think I honestly think it's for everyone. I was talking to a mum yesterday who has had to give up her job during pandemic because she's got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And this story is repeated for so many women in pandemic. It's just heartbreaking. It's just, what are you going to do? You mm-hmm. can't get any childcare and schools are closed. And she said to me, she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to rebuild my business. She had to shutter her business. She was, um, it was her own business. Um, and I, you know, I sometimes think it would be like good to set an example for my my daughter and I said to her and it's not a criticism of her because she's right it's good to set I think it's important that girls see that women can do all sorts of things I said, well, it might be good to set an example to your son as well mm, <laughs> I think that's right I don't think it's about just like fixing women and yeah. women's beliefs I think that when we have uh, a balance of views and perspectives and experience at the top table I think policy is better. I think politics is better. I think outcomes for society are better. I, I suspect men's mental health in the long run would be better, although I can't prove it. I wouldn't die in a ditch over that. But I, I, I just think it would be better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. I'm somewhere between a like a, a romantic and a, a pragmatic idealist. I think we can do better. I think mm-hmm. we can. I agree. I agree. And that, that's a theme that will come up. I mean, across the whole project and in this specific episode, too, of identifying some of those dynamics and inviting men to participate with us in making those changes, because it's it's mm-hmm. going to be impossible without that. I love that to point out that she needs to be that uh, to show that example for her son as well as her daughter's. And um, for her too. I was like, and for, her oh, no, too. And, and for you, you know, right. be happy. Right. You've got some right. examples to set to your kids to right. be happy. Right. Wonderful. Thanks, Louisa. That's, that's a lovely introduction to the episode today. Uh, our next step before we dive into the text is to introduce the author. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Mary Beard her title is Dame Mary Beard. So maybe as a Brit, you can explain the significance of that title of Dame and tell us about this magnificent woman. Who, she's very well known in England. Is that right? She is. It would be a pleasure to tell you about Dame Mary Beard. I'm not actually that strong on things like dames and barons. and So a, a dame is not a hereditary peer. This is where we, we could get very derailed by talking about the English class system and aristocracy. There are some people who are born into a title, like uh, they're born to be, um, they inherit the title of a lord or an earl or a duke. Um, uh, and there are some people who are given honours by something called the Civil Honours List, which is a list which um, is published on behalf of the Queen, or the King if we had one, but it meant we have a Queen, every year, which recognises people who've really achieved very significant things in their field of expertise. So it's a big deal. It's a fancy title, and it says, you are great. So um, Mary Beard, Dame Mary Beard, Professor Dame Mary Beard, also has lots of letters after her name. Uh, mm-hmm. I checked them out. She is Dame Mary Beard, D-B-E, F-S-A, F-B-A, F-R-S-L. Uh, <laughs> and letters after your name are also a, a, a sign that you've really made it in England in an intellectual sense. 
Uh, and I'm going to try and keep calling her Professor Beard. It's very tempting to call her Mary because I think that's what we often do with women. We kind of go, oh, Mary. Mm. Um, and we do it less with men. They tend to get uh, their family name. Um, and she's a professor. And I'm going to try and stick with that. She is a professor of classics at Cambridge University. She was born in England in 1955. And her father was an architect. And her mother was a headmistress, which is actually, you know, it's quite a powerful position in its own way. But even so, Beard has talked about, and in the book we're looking at today, she's written about the fact that her mum always regretted not being able to go to university and about how frustrated she would get that her views and her voice were not necessarily being taken as seriously as she hoped they would be or thought they should be. Um, and that was a real sadness in her life. And I think um, Professor Beard's professional success um, brought her a lot of joy, that sense of uh, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before and each generation can advance a bit further. Um, and as well as being a very distinguished professor of classics, Professor Beard has written several books on classical matters. Uh, and she's also presented lots of TV and radio programs in England. So she's really quite a popular cultural figure. Most of them have been on Greece and Rome, which is her expertise, but some of them on contemporary culture. She presents quite a cool late night show at the moment on contemporary culture. And she's received a lot of affection uh, for her popularisation of history and classics. Um, she's shown by fact lots of people watch her programmes. But she's also one of the most high profile women I can think of, certainly in the, in the academic world. There are female politicians who've had to deal with similar things. She's also received this unbelievable amount of abuse uh, on social media, but also actually in print media, you know, national newspapers, uh, mainstream media. A lot of it from men, most of most of this abuse. I mean, criticism, criticism of ideas that can come from anywhere. Most of the abuse has come from men who are criticising her for being too old and too unattractive to be in public. <laughs> when I say mm. it, I... I, I kind of can't quite believe the words that come out of my mouth because it just sounds ridiculous. Mm. But actually, that's the reality she's been living in for at least the last 15 years or so. And often this abuse is quite directly about the fact she's a woman in middle age who isn't being quiet or staying in the background. Lots of tweets branding her a witch, um, tweets threatening her with sexual assault. Um, you know, in her own words, she said she looks like an ordinary woman of her age. And I think she might be like, well, not necessarily doing her, herself a disservice. I mean, she does. I think she looks really nice. She, she's got mm -hmm. grey hair and she's not a size eight anymore, mm -hmm. if she ever was. But, you know, she's mm -hmm. a completely normal human being. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but back in 2012, when she was in her mid-50s, the most famous and powerful TV critic in England. And again, you just got to remember, England is a small island. It punched above its weight for a long time politically, but it's really quite a small place. So this, this guy, A.A. Gill, he was really powerful, really influential. And he laid into her for her hair and her teeth and her clothes mm. when she presented a series. And he actually wrote, quote, too ugly for television. Mm. End quote. Wow. Um, and despite the fact she's a professor at Cambridge University and she's won academic prizes and she's a dame, given that position by the Queen, a lot of the abuse also dismisses her ideas, not on the basis of evidence or on an alternative opinion about those ideas, but on the grounds that she's stupid. 
you know, she's stupid, which she demonstrably isn't. I think there are many things you could say about Professor Beard, but stupid just isn't really rationally one of them. Um, And one of the things I find interesting about her take on the classics is her belief that ancient sources, that they have to be understood as as documentation for the attitudes and the context of their author and the times in which they were written. And that doesn't actually sound particularly revolutionary, but actually the the long history of of classical study hasn't often seen things that way. And it makes the book we're looking at today really interesting because she takes all this amazing knowledge she has about the classical world and she really casts a critical eye over the beliefs that you can see in these venerated texts. Uh, And she looks at the beliefs that you can find in them. You You don't have to look very hard to find them about how women should be excluded from power, um, about how women in power are monstrous, unnatural, um, and about how these beliefs of this world, which seems it seems so far away, doesn't it? These statues with limbs missing in museums, these beautiful statues and beautiful poems from a long time ago. But these beliefs from this ancient world are still are still being used to normalise gendered violence and they're still part of this cultural water that these women. And she argues, and this is a quote, we don't have model or template for what a powerful woman looks like. We only have templates that make them men, uh, end quote. And that really resonated for me because that, you know, that was the experience I had in my own really small way when I was at university going, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to do this right, I'm going to have to write like a man. And it, it is the experience I found as a, as a professional woman looking at the role models and seeing how many of them were like, well, to get what I want, I'm going to do it as a man. And just at this point in my life thinking, I think there might be another way. I think we mm. should try and find another way. And also, I have to say, in terms of her biography, um, this is a woman who has been known to invite social media trolls to tea uh, it's just oh. unbelievable. When you look at the things that people have tweeted at her or said about her, she sometimes takes them out to tea. And in one case, wow. one of them, who was a student, who wrote really vile, you know, what? Vile things tweeted at her and then got outed in the media for doing it and then found, you know, he couldn't he couldn't get a job because that's what happens if you mm-hmm. um, get shamed in our culture at this point on social media. And she actually wrote him a job reference. No. <laughs> because she'd wow. got she'd got to know him a bit and she knew he was genuinely sorry and she didn't want it to ruin his life. So she's really cool as well as being really smart. So mm. yeah. Yeah, what a what magnificent human being. And she's funny. I laughed she's out very loud funny. <laughs> several times in the book. I I thought her sense of humor was just delightful. Well, thanks for that. That's a fantastic introduction um, of Professor Beard. So we'll dive into the text now. The The book is quite, it's quite a slim little volume. You can read it in a day and it's divided into four parts. So the first part is a preface uh, and then a lecture that Professor Beard gave in 2014, which is called The Public Voice of Women, and then a separate lecture that she gave in 2017 called Women in Power, and then there's a short afterward. And so we're going to be taking turns sharing passages that impacted us the most kind of thematically. So we'll we'll take turns saying this is a theme that we noticed from that we've drawn from these essays in this little uh, compilation of two speeches in the in the forward and af- afterwards. So Louisa, if you can start us off with one of the themes that you found 
the most um, striking to you? For sure. So um, one of the things I really um, enjoyed about this book was it really helped me uh, with a, not just with issues around feminism and patriarchy, but with a frustration I had about learning about the classical world. When you learn about the classical world, um, you're generally expected to think the ancient Greeks were really marvellous. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because they made all these beautiful paintings and uh, beautiful statues uh, and the extraordinary advances in science and philosophy. And there were, <clears throat> yes, some flaws in their views on women and slaves. But anyway, look at the beautiful <laughs> statues. And I just couldn't quite get there. You know, I'd sort of sit in class going, mm, women and slaves, you know, can't we talk about that bit? And so Professor Beard's analysis of the silencing of women and its roots and its ubiquity in the ancient world, it really helped me feel better about my attitude <laughs> because <laughs> she doesn't gloss over these issues um she investigates them and then she explains how it impacts on us and in, in, in the introduction she says this is one place where the world of the ancient greeks and romans can help to throw light on our own when it comes to silencing women western culture has had thousands of years of practice and it's like finally here's someone who can help me make sense of that discomfort I felt, not by attacking it, I mean, she's devoted her life to studying the classics, but by examining its impact in a way that is unflinching of the good and the bad. And quite early in the book, she sets up this idea of the way women get silenced with an illustration from our own times. And when I was, when I started reading the book and I got to this page, I was like, wow, because she, she uses a parody uh, in an old punch cartoon by an artist called Rihanna Duncan which shows five men and one woman, and they're all sitting around a formal meeting room. And uh, the woman has a, a look of bewilderment on her face and dismay. Uh, um, and the, the men all look quite happy with the world. And it, it looks like the chairman's mouth is open, so he's probably talking. And in the caption, the chairman is saying, that's an excellent suggestion, Miss Driggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was like, wow, because I have that postcard. I have that that picture. I actually ordered a copy of it when I when Mm. I first saw it because it resonated so strongly with me. I I have been that woman in a meeting room or watched other women being that woman in a meeting room thinking, oh, hang on. I just Mm -hmm. I just said that. Mm -hmm. No one paid any attention. Now he's said exactly the same thing and everyone thinks it's great. What Mm -hmm. am I? You, know, you sort of think, can I check my own volume control? You know, did, the, did, I, did, 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 did what, what just happened there? Um, and and she uses it as a kind of as an opener, as a, a way of getting into these issues. And as she says, uh, "quote There is hardly a woman who has opened her mouth at a meeting and not had at some time or other the Miss Triggs treatment." Um, and that really kind of pulled me up because I did. It did happen to me and I did see it happen to other women, but I hadn't really kind of extended it to the idea that it was happening in other meeting rooms all over the place. Mm. It's like, oh, yeah, this is this is a thing. And I remember um, meetings uh, at various times in my professional career at which really, really strange conversations would happen. I remember being in one meeting, an extremely senior person uh, and uh, and also my boss at that time, uh, and I came into the meeting a couple of minute, minutes late because um, I was doing something else. And uh, and we were sitting there and I talking about various women in in the organisation. 
and and comparing them to dogs. What what dogs would they be? And I, I was oh. like, <laughs> it's hard to know what to do. Really, is when you're you're in your twenties and and you know, but you can speak out and go, hey, I don't think that's very nice, mm-hmm. is it? Uh, and then you're the person who's no fun and can't take a joke, and it's like there's nothing <laughs> nothing untoward about it. Or you can be silent or you can join in. And none of those options is actually really feels like a good option. They all feel like bad options in some way. I can remember other meetings where um, people would be discussing, you know, well, who, who would you most want to have sex with in more mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon terms than that. <laughs> the media can be quite a fruity environment, shall we say. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's just... Um, mm. It's another way of silencing women. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's it's a kind of diminishment. Uh, and, 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 and I think when you complain about it, often if you complain about it, um, the response is, oh, you're no fun. You can't take a, You can't take a joke. Don't be so serious. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it's it's a kind of quiet humiliation. Um, and, you know, you can't really complain. Um, what? Professor Beard does in this book is is to give you a long view of women being told overtly or covertly um, to shut up, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, not to be heard in in public, not not to speak. And and she because she's a classicist, she's she's got all the tools at her fingertips. So she covers as a fourth century comedy by Aristophanes, um, which mocks the hilarious idea that women might take over running the state apparently that's just like a huge joke that I do mm. um she looks at Ovid's metamorphosis which repeatedly has this idea of silencing women in the process of transformation so one of them Io is turned into a cow so she's only able to moo uh, Philomena is raped and then has her tongue cut out by the rapist to prevent her from speaking out uh, and these texts are so often looked at in in other terms they're looked at for the beauty of the language or the impact of the themes and it really it was really like a kind of still moment for me to go oh oh yes there's all that stuff too there's beautiful language and beautiful writing but there's there's this as well Mm -hmm. I had the same um, response reading those that a, a lot of these stories most of them I was familiar with and seeing them anew through a lens of like how they kind of form archetypes and and that's what myths do right they're stories through which we understand ourselves and the world and when i read that passage about philomela who is raped and then has her her tongue cut out so that she can't speak out ag- uh, against her rapist i just immediately thought of kind of like a succession of women from our own generation came to my mind i thought of anita hill um and and those photos that that you know that we've all seen where she's testifying um about the sexual harassment and abuse that she endured and it just she was just in such a hostile and condescending environment just surrounded by men right and she she just looks so alone and out of her element and i thought of christine blasey ford and her voice shaking like she was the one who was on trial and Chanel Miller, who was Emily Doe, who was sexually assaulted, the famous Stanford case from a few years ago. And when she was reading her victim impact statement, 
to the court. And, and the other example that we talked about a few episodes ago is my sister, Whitney, and she was raped while she was in college and was silent about it for years. She was actually silenced and then, and didn't speak out about it. And she finally decided to, to talk about it. And I was with her when she posted on Facebook and she was, I've never seen such courage because she chose, she chose to do it despite the fact that she was physically shaking, like in a full physical terror response. And I just thought, I mean, not only obviously, I mean, it's, it's traumatizing to relive horrible experiences, but this part of the book really kind of um, illuminated the aspect of this experience that it's when women are trying to speak about that trauma, that they do so in an environment that for centuries and and actually millennia has been designated as a male space that men speak and women are to be silent. And so if a woman dares to speak in those spaces, it's terrifying. Yeah. I I think that, that hostility uh, to women speaking Professor Beard has experienced and that these women and these myths experience and that the women that you've talked about in our own time, including your sister, have experienced that that hostility in the spaces where you might speak isn't isn't is is so it's such a common thread. Mm-hmm. It it isn't it each time something like that happens, it's tempting to look at it in a kind of specific way, like look at the specific people, the specific actors in that moment. And I think when you start to look at it as a as a systemic thing, it really changes your understanding of what's going on. And, and those examples you gave of women who've suffered violence or sexual assault, rape, and families' hostile environments when they attempt to speak out, they're really shocking and really chilling really I feel upset thinking about it Mm. um but it's it's not even or not just those kinds of of extremity um Professor Beard talks about she she traces this pattern of silencing women back through ancient literature all the way to Homer and the scene where Penelope who is Odysseus's wife and has been waiting for him for a really long time. This man has like gone out to the shops and disappeared. He's been gone for a long time. Uh, and she, she's in her own house and she comes into the great hall and she finds a bard performing to a throng of suitors who have basically taken root in her house. They all want to marry her because her husband's been gone for so long. And she doesn't like the music and she asks him to play another song. And her son, Telemachus, steps in and he says... Go back up into your quarters and take up your own work. Speech will be the business of men and of me most of all, for mine is the power in this household. And she goes back upstairs. Um, So even in her own house, admittedly, it's not a completely private space because there's always other men in it who want to marry her. Uh, even something as innocuous as saying, can you change the track? Uh, that one is a bit of a downer. Um, she doesn't have the right to speak in this paradigm of what a woman is. Uh, and Professor Beard points out that this is part of Telemachus's coming of age, that this is his growing up as a man, learning to take control of speech. 
and learning to silence the women, even when it's your mother, your mother. Um, so your masculinity depends on it. And I think by implication, you know, your femininity and your legitimacy as a woman depends on staying quiet. This felt very familiar to me. In fact, I, I mean, I have another personal story I could share, and, and maybe I will because it just, um, when I read this, Again, in this context, and, and I've read the Odyssey, you know, several times in my life, but when I read it again in this book, I thought I've actually had almost, I've had such a similar experience. There was one time a few years ago where I was talking with a, um, a woman who's close to me that I know really well. She's quite a bit older than me. Um, and this is a woman who, come, you know, a, a different generation and also a, a religious tradition where even in her wedding vows, like women of many faiths even today, included the vow to be obedient to your husband. And this woman has shared with me that she was raised very much to always be feminine and to be kind of ingratiating and to to kind of revolve around men. And so that that's very much how she was raised. Anyway, we were talking in in my family room, in my home, and the conversation between us, our, our families were there too. And the conversation got a little tense. I don't remember what we were talking about. I don't think that it was like um, tension between us. I don't think it was acrimonious in any way, but we were discussing something that kind of heightened tension, I guess. And her husband, kind of his ears perked up and he kind of came into the room and started listening. And that was fine. But then he said, he said um, something like, I don't think you should be talking about this. And we both kind of looked at him kind of quizzically like, um, we're fine. <laughs> I, I, we're not distressed at all. We're, we're fine. And he just stayed there kind of observing us. And we, we kept talking. And he said, again, you need to stop talking. And he was just getting more and more agitated. And we, we reassured him again that we were fine. But he, he escalated further and further until he finally said to her, and I will remember these words because it, it's kind of seared into my mind. He said, as, as to his wife, he said, as your senior companion, I am not asking you, I am directing you to stop talking. And I was so stunned. Um, I did stop talking. So the result, I was, I was incensed. I was flooded with heat in my body, but I was so blindsided that the result was we did stop talking and I walked up to my bedroom and she, I think, went meekly to her bedroom. I don't know if she felt angry or I mean, we she was censored so um, kind of humiliatingly, actually. And we both and and we just kind of did what he told us to do. And and um, so this this scene just brought this incident back to my mind. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And um, I think it just demonstrates, I mean, present in this scene from my life was both dynamics. It's where the it, this man thought that it was his job and his, you know, his role, his masculine role, that it was his, his stewardship to monitor and police the women's speech. Even it wasn't even his home. It was my home, but it, that was his job as a man. And then it was the woman's role, I guess, to just re meekly retreat to the bedroom when you're prohibited from speaking by a man. So that was what came to my mind at that, uh, that part of the book. <laughs> it's just an extraordinary like, recollection. Did you ever ask her about it? No, I never did. 
I think I wanted to allow her to save face. Maybe I didn't know if she would be embarrassed. And actually, I was kind of honestly, maybe a little afraid of what she would say also, because I do sense that she has internalized so much of that patriarchal structure inside of herself. And I thought, I don't know that I want to open that can of worms and then feel judgmental of her if she thought that that was appropriate, because I so very much did not feel it was appropriate. And if she did, I didn't, I didn't know that I wanted to have that conversation. (laughs) But it was, it was distressing to me. I'm so struck by the two of you kind of, and you're such a strong woman. I'm so struck by the two of you in the end going, okay. Yeah. I'm struck by it too. I'm so sad about it. I'm so sad about it. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. I think on the episode um, about how one thing that I've really I've really been trying to train myself differently, um, and that's one thing that I've really gained from this project is giving so much thought to it, so that hopefully I won't be so blindsided in the future, and I'll have kind of I'll have a better response ready next time that something like that happens. Yes, I think you will. <laughs> um, so. One of the things that Professor Beard then goes on to look at is, well, okay, if if there are all these situations in which women can't speak, mustn't speak, are punished for speaking, when can they speak? (laughs) (laughs) When do women get to speak publicly? Uh, And this is not a depressing book. It's a really interesting read. And Amy, as you Mm -hmm. said earlier, it's quite a quick read as well because it's based on some lectures. Um, but but this part of the book did make you know when she she pulls it out. When can women speak publicly? And the answer is, <laughs> there's a few times in the ancient world uh, when they can speak publicly. Um, so when they're victims or martyrs, usually as a preface to their death, just before <laughs> before they die, often horribly, uh, they get to say they get to say their piece. Um, so in early Roman history, you get Lucretia, who denounces her rapist. Yep that's again, and then announces her own suicide. Um, so they get to do that. They get to Perfect. defend their homes, their children, their husbands, or the interests of other women. And she gives us uh, the example of a Hortensia who got away with speaking public because she was defending women from a really unpleasant wealth tax for a war effort, which was really dubious. Uh, and the conclusion she draws from this is, um, I'm going to quote it, women, in other words may in extreme circumstances publicly defend their own sectional interests, but not speak for men or the community as a whole. Uh, And then she goes on to quote a second century AD guru (laughs) uh, who said, a woman should as modestly guard against exposing her voice to outsiders as she would guard against stripping off her clothes. It's like a double whammy of your body is shameful and should be reserved only for your husband. And by the way, your voice is shameful and should be reserved only for the domestic sphere. But then even the domestic sphere, as Penelope finds out, then your son or anyone else is entitled to tell you to shut up. <laughs> uh, and she she pulls uh, Professor Beard pulls this through into our world with examples like Emmeline Pankhurst, who is a famous British suffragette, or Sojourner Truth, um, the ex-slave uh, who uh, whose Ain't I a Woman speech is uh, quite famous and often, often published in anthologies of speeches. Uh, and the fact is that 
Often in these anthologies of great speeches, the ones which come from women are the one and are regarded as great speeches are the ones in which women are talking about the difficulty of being a woman um, or the needs that women have or maybe that children have. And, and Professor Beard has this phrase which she uses, which makes me feel really uncomfortable, but I think it's it's an important one. And And she talks about how they're allowed the speeches where they, quote, parade their victimhood end of quote. Um, And there's a lot of hard things bound up in that phrase for me because, you know, a victim should never be muted as we've been talking about. It's really important to be able to speak, not be silenced from what's happened to you. But at the same time, if that's all that you're allowed to speak about, if that's the only time you're allowed to speak, there's a real deep ugliness in, in that, in this appetite we have to hear from women when they talk about their suffering and when they when they sound like the way that we think women are supposed to sound which is to talk about their victimhood Hmm. but not like you said to talk about economic policy or to talk about the larger issues in the world that um have you know that are important to men and women and and all human beings, right? So, and that leads perfectly, I think, into the next topic that we were going to discuss, which is what's wrong with women's speech? Why aren't women um, allowed to or encouraged to speak? So I'm going to start this section just with a quote from Professor Beard. She says, quote, we find repeated stress throughout ancient literature on the authority of the deep male voice in contrast to the female. As one ancient scientific treatise explicitly put it, a low-pitched voice indicated manly courage, a high-pitched voice female cowardice. Other classical writers insisted that the tone and timbre of women's speech always threatened to subvert not just the voice of the male orator, but also with social and political instability, the health of the whole state. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, I mean, it's still the water we're swimming in. So women, you know, in public are still being labelled as strident or whiners or shrill. And I'm quite lucky because I have a low voice, so that didn't ever happen to me. Although it does mean that often if I go into a shop, if people don't look up, they go, how can I help you, sir? Because I'm six oh. foot tall as well, and I'm like... <laughs> the other day and I'm a a person next to the guy behind the counter was like uh yeah she wanted this and he kept on going yeah just tell him I was like like, do I give you the benefit of a doubt because it's in COVID I'm wearing a face mask no I don't think I do no no (laughs) you have a beautiful voice (laughs) but yeah Beard was labeled a whiner in Mm -hmm. in the British press when she responded to really disgusting tweets about her genitalia these really unpleasant, deeply misogynistic tweets about her appearance, her genitalia. Uh, and and she she pulls out this. She says, labels like whiner really matter because, I'm going to, this is a quote from the book, they underpin an idiom that acts to remove your authority, the force, even the humour from what women have to say. It is an idiom that effectively repositions women back into the domestic sphere. People whinge over things like the washing up. It trivialises their words or it reprivatizes them. Contrast the deep-voiced man 
with all the connotations of profundity that the simple word deep brings it. It is still the case that when listeners hear a female voice, they do not hear a voice that connotes authority, or rather, they have not learned how to hear authority in it. And it's not just voice. You can add in craggy or wrinkled faces that signal mature wisdom in the case of a bloke, but past my use-by date in the case of a woman. <laughs> so well put. Uh, that that part made me laugh. But I was also really struck by that that phrase where she said that when listeners hear a female voice, they do not hear a voice that connotes authority, or rather they have not learned how to hear authority in it. I thought that was so true. I, <laughs> In contrast to you, I do not have a low voice. That's something that I've always been self-conscious about, and I've always tried to make it lower. In fact, I've always had friends tease me. When I, I tend to, when I answer the phone, I'll say hello, like low, but then gradually through the conversation, once I stop paying attention and trying to lower my voice, then it just drifts back up to my natural octave. But I also was so teased and I thought it was funny at the, I still think it's funny, but, but it, I, I see it differently a little bit now is that in college, I, in a certain class, I, I would speak frequently in front of the group. And when I would get up to the microphone, I would also, I'd just be self-conscious of my, of my higher pitched voice. And it wasn't a conscious thing that I would try to make it sound more masculine, but I just instinctively knew that to be taken seriously, I should speak lower. And so, and so after a couple of times, this friend, this guy friend of mine came up to me after I was done with the speech. And, and he said, just to tease me, he he said, "Happy birthday, Mr. President!" Like I was, like I was Marilyn Monroe, like singing into the singing into the microphone, and it was hilarious. But now I look back and I think, even my attempt to sound more, you know, authoritative, was interpreted not as authoritative but as seductive. Like I couldn't. There was nothing I could do. To sound like, you know, uh, an expert on the topic that I was speaking on. So there was, I just, now that I look back on it, I thought, again, I still think it's funny, but there's just no way as a woman to be taken seriously. Yeah, so. I mean, it is a funny story, but at the same time, it speaks to this idea that whatever tone of voice or way a woman speaks, whatever you do... <laughs> It's mm -hmm. still not the voice of authority because right. we don't have that association. Right. Um, so whatever voice you use as a woman, is it seems to be a problem. But whatever voice you do use, uh, Beard does, uh, uh, goes on to look at what happens when you use it and you stray into traditional male discursive territory. So not talking about your own sexual assault or children's rights or all the, the things which are really important but are seen as the appropriate domain of women. What happens if you stray into talking about stuff that is thought of as the domain of men? Uh, and she identifies three things. Uh, the first thing that can happen is you get dismissed as stupid, which has happened to Professor Beard quite a lot herself. Um, and she says, I've lost count of the number of times I've been called an ignorant moron. Wow. You know, she's... <laughs> She's a very clever woman. You could probably say lots of things about her ideas about the ancient world, but um, the idea that she's an ignorant moron is not one of them. Mm. Uh, the second thing um, she identifies is that you get threatened with forcible silencing, and that really speaks to this issue of trolling and trying to silence women who speak in the public sphere on social media. 
One tweet she received said, I'm going to cut off your head and rape it. It's just extraordinary. And um, and she says that shut up, you bitch, is actually a fairly common one. It's a fairly like common or garden uh, insult. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this was a story from a few years ago about um, a news story from a few years ago where there was an ad campaign for shoe wear and the model was a very pretty um, blonde woman, young woman from Sweden, I think, um, her legs weren't shaved. And the video version of this ad on YouTube was absolutely bombarded with abuse in the comments that included rape threats. Mm. And although Beard's writing is really focused on the issues of a public voice and of women and political power in the public sphere, I think that this is very connected to these other ideas of what happens when women just try to be in the public realm, try to exist in the public realm, the, the narrowness uh, with which you are considered appropriate. So one of the things that struck me about this uh, news story was that just the idea of a woman having hairy legs, apparently that was, it was so disgusting um, to so many men that they should be confronted with uh, hairy legs on a woman, that it was okay for them to say, I'd like, you know, to threaten threaten rape as a response. It's just like, well, what, what on earth does it have to do with another human being, how hairy her legs are? Um, and this straightening, this limitation on the lives of women attempting to just go about being a human being outside the house and exercise this much smaller scale power of self-agency, I think it's part of the same thing that Beard is writing about, this very narrow degree of tolerance for what a woman can can be or do in a public space. And I don't know what else to say because it just upsets me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. And to me that, I mean, what I always refer to is the, the very first episodes on the podcast were really a revelation to me in kind of looking back at the Middle Assyrian law and the Code of Hammurabi and how it was codified that men really did own women's bodies. And I just see that as an echo of the same um, the same system. It just hasn't gone away, that a, that a man can look at a woman's body and declare it, uh, you know, not only unattractive, but like unacceptable, and I will physically punish you. To me, it just sounds like these archaic, violent, exercised laws about what women could and couldn't do with their bodies. It just is disheartening to realize how that is still a part of our mental construct. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it relates to the fact that when people choose to attack her on social media, they generally don't attack her by saying, well, when you said that about Homer, mm-hmm. <laughs> they choose mm-hmm. to do it on mm-hmm. the basis of her, of her appearance. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what they find disgusting somehow. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the third thing um, that she says happens, or she notes happens, when a woman strays into like traditional male-appropriate territory, speaking, is that they get silenced um, either because it's just everyone goes, well, it's more convenient if you're silent, or it's for their own good. She cites the example of how in the Afghan parliament they actually just unplug the microphones when we don't want to hear the women speak. Um, 
And in general, in her experience, her personal experience and in her observation experience, women are frequently told to be silent in the face of abuse. Don't call the abusers out. Don't give them any attention. Just keep mum and block them, she says, is what she's been told. And you just think, wow, people are tweeting her, comparing her genitals to rotting vegetables um, and saying they want to cut her head off and rape her. And and the response is somehow, well, just keep your head down and, mm. and don't give them any attention. Mm. And that reminded me of something that happened earlier this year, um, which was came out of a really awful story. Um, there was a woman in London, she was in her early 30s, and she was sexually assaulted and murdered by a complete stranger as she walked home. And she did all the right things. She was on a longer route that was well lit and populated, and she was in bright clothes, she was in shoes that she could run in. She had phoned her boyfriend to check in with him and let him know she was on her way home. Uh, and none of those things which you get told to do as a woman in an urban environment, none of those things helped her. And while the hunt for her killer was underway, the police um, went door to door in the area, advising women to stay inside for their own safety. And, and the incredible thing about this story was that it raised an outcry from women of all walks of life, demanding that men should have to bear the burden of ensuring safety. And if anyone was going to be under curfew, it should be them. And I, I was so moved by that. I just thought, wow, mm. wh- why haven't I ever seen it that way before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why should it be women who suddenly have to stay indoors and um, and take all these precautions? Why should the burden fall on us? And it was one of those moments where you just think, wow, there's just a, there's another way of seeing this. And these things which it doesn't necessarily even occur to you to challenge, just think, oh, there's an assumption there. I don't care for that assumption. And those mm. the bravery of those women during COVID when it was um, – it was very hard to, to do public gatherings in London at that point, but they were very insistent on holding vigils uh, and celebrating the life of that woman and saying, no, we, we, won't, we won't be told to shut up and disappear from public space because we belong here too. That was a, just an incredibly beautiful response, I think, beautiful and also really important to what had happened. Mm-hmm. I remember reading about that and and seeing photographs also of wasn't there quite a, a police response, like policing the women and even it came to violence, I think, um, yeah. really tr- suppressing those demonstrations and those vigils. Is is that right, Louisa? Am I remembering and that it was, correctly? It was possibly complicated by it was complicated by a few things. So there was some legislation that the government were attempting to pass uh, preventing people from gathering. Uh, and the, yes, the perpetrator course, yeah. of the crime actually turned out to be an off-duty policeman. So there was a, a lot of that's right, uh, awful um, circumstance. But yes, it, it was one of those moments where you really saw this these women trying to hold a peaceful vigil and to take public space and do it safely with social distancing and all these things. And this incredibly aggressive response from the state and a predominantly male police force, trampling the flowers, um, pulling mm-hmm. the women away, uh, arresting mm-hmm. them. Um, and it, in a, it was awful, but in a way it was brilliant because when you see these things so clearly, they can't, they're not hidden anymore. And I do think that's part of how change happens. I would love for change not, not to happen through those moments of extremity. Um, but 
when injustice is so visible, you, you, you watch that footage and you, it was just very unjust. You could see it. It was not right that those women should be treated in that way for wanting to be in public space mm-hmm. uh, and wanting to celebrate that woman's life. And I think, you know, those are the moments when things sometimes start to shift. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's a, that actually is a perfect segue into the next point that we wanted to highlight, which was the question, you know, what, what can we do about it? What can we do to bring about change? And Professor Beard had some ideas about that. We loved this, this passage that Professor Beard writes. She says, quote, We should perhaps try to bring to the surface the kinds of questions we tend to shelve about how we speak in public, why and whose voice fits. What we need is some old-fashioned consciousness raising about what we mean by the voice of authority and how we've come to construct it. We need to work that out before we figure out how we modern Penelopes might answer back to our own telemachuses, end quote. And that's kind of what I was referencing earlier when I thought about that, that incident where I was so... Uh, again, kind of blindsided by what happened, although I shouldn't have been. Things like that have happened so many times before in my life, but I, I just kind of, I just retreated. And I could tell another brief story about that. And and I've just been really um, reflecting since I read this, this passage by Professor Beard about, um, you know, considering myself as a Penelope again and what I would do differently. And there was one incident that happened in 2016. I wrote an article um, that went viral in the the kind of progressive Mormon space or Mormon feminist space online, um, became pretty well known. And it's called Dear Mormon Man, Tell Me What You Would Do. And as a result of that, I was invited to speak at this lecture series at Stanford with the kind of the Mormon or the LDS Student Association at Stanford, they invite different people in to speak. And so I prepared my thoughts and went in to, you know, give this lecture to a bunch of, I I, I asked beforehand who would be there, like, who's my audience and, you know, what do they want to hear me speak about? And um, she said, it'll be, you know, mostly undergrads, some grad students and talk about anything. And so I talked about some of the things that I'd written about in my essay, but I also shared some thoughts about women's ordination to the priesthood and just some structural things in our religion and comparing them to other Christian religions. And I'd prepared my notes and the students were filing in and there was just a really lovely, friendly feeling in the room. But right as I was, you know, as the clock was kind of ticking down to when I was supposed to start my, um, my, in, it's kind of an, an informal lecture, I guess, with a Q&A afterwards. As I was, you know, at the front of the room and, and preparing to, to start, <laughs> there was what I perceived as almost like a wall of men in suits. There weren't that many, but like the men in suits started to come in. And I immediately just became aware of of authority and, you know, kind of these gray haired in ties and they had their wives on their arms. And it was ecclesiastical leaders in that um, community that were coming in. And I I was very aware. I I had to give myself, you know, a real pep talk before I started because I suddenly was very aware of kind of being presided over in the room. And I really did. I mean, 
my the words in my mind, you can do this, Amy. They invited you here to hear what you have to say. You are the expert on the topic that you're talking about. That's why they invited you. And so I, I was able to kind of summon my courage, but I just felt like there was a hunk of crypt- kryptonite in the back of the room, just kind of trying to sap my my personal power. And I, I was really proud of myself. I, I did the speech. It was great. There was a Q&A afterwards. But when I was finished, the students were trying to come up to me to, you know, say thanks or whatever and ask me questions. And these men who had who had come to my speech, which I had not expected, um, and came up to me and just formed kind of a kind of a wall around me and just let me have it just lit into me about, um, do you know, I don't actually even remember the words. I just remember feeling again, like just this heat in my body and kind of slow motion trying to process what what was happening. But I do remember being threatened that he was going to tell my, you know, congregation, my, you know, the leader of my congregation. So kind of threatening, um, church action against me and saying that I was associating with it, you know, th- different people. And that was heretical. And so I, that was such a, actually quite a traumatizing experience for me. And I watched the students kind of behind these men, just kind of looking through kind of like, oh, I guess I don't get to talk to her because they were monopolizing my time. And they all just filed out and left. And I was cornered and being chastised like I was a child kind of like in in the principal's office because I had done something wrong. And I was just, again, I was silent as they chastised me. And I went home and I said to my husband, I'm never doing that again. And I didn't. (laughs) I said, I'm never writing again. I'm never publishing in on that topic again. I am and so I did sorry it. that happened to you, Amy. <laughs> Thanks. It, I can like feel heat in my face <laughs> as I hear you talking and, and thinking about that kind of grotesque way of um, trying to put you back in a box when you simply exercise a speech, express an opinion, invited opinion in a public forum. Uh, and that hostility of response and the, the the threat and the the blackmail that you got as a result of I mean we can we can call that female power I think in in terms of Beard's book it would fall into the category of an attempt to exercise female power it you know it's like an attempt to just be a human being and and speak in public on a subject and to be met with that response it, it's incredibly it's incredibly disturbing. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks. Well, what I wish I had done, I guess, and this is what I've coached myself to think if this happens to me again, is just to simply, I think what I should have done partly, again, I'm, I'm a rather small person and kind of those other signals like my voice isn't low. And I think physically what I should have done is just said, you know what, I something like I'm here to talk to the students And maybe here's my email address if you'd like to email me your concerns, but I'm going to go talk to the students and physically walk away and just assert my assert my right to be there physically and also verbally. Um, The sad thing is I don't like to assume the worst in people, but I think what that's led to is that I do get blindsided by it over and over and over again. And I don't want to have a chip on my shoulder and have like these 
you know, um, defensive strategies always at the ready so that I'm trigger happy and I, you know, snap at people when they don't even have those intentions. But, um, but I do think I need to be a little bit more realistic. And when I'm in those environments to have something ready in case I am bullied in that way, again. I'm, I'm curious to know how you kind of staged yourself for that public speech. Like, did you, I'm not saying you should have done, please do not get me wrong, but like, did you power dress? Did you wear heels? Because I, I think, I think one, I mean, one of the things I want to talk about next is, is what it takes for us to recognize female power and whether the mm-hmm. things that it takes for us to recognize female power are the right things. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of those things are actually, you see in female politicians, the way they stage themselves. Um, so I'm curious, did you do that stuff? I did. I did. I wore, I mean, and you should coach me. I'll call you next time if, <laughs> if I'm in that situation. I, don't I, know, I did. Well, you I, know, I'm six foot tall, so I don't really, you know, I don't really have to worry yeah. about it. No, I wore very tall shoes and I wore just like really smart Actually, it's from Bowdoin, which is a British company, but like professional slacks and like a blouse. Maybe I should have worn red, right? You know that everybody knows that's a power color. But I did. I dressed very professionally. I was very careful in what I wore. I probably did, knowing me, you know, try to lower my voice as I spoke. Um, I thought I did everything right. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But maybe I may have let my guard down afterward and and maybe signaled in some of those, you know, micro signaling ways with my body and face that I was, that I could be targeted. And so maybe I needed to hold my shoulders back and the whole time until, <laughs> until the inv- entire event was over. But anyway, but, you know, but men I don't noticed, have to do that. I don't think. Yeah, Go ahead. I noticed you saying, maybe I should have done this and maybe I should have mm. done that. And maybe I should have done it. And I think, well, maybe they shouldn't have been bullying you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Honestly, what I think, Amy, uh, right. I honestly think, you know, it's sometimes it's nice to wear a power suit. And I have uh, a few times in my life put on really gigantic heels, generally when I was mm. just dealing with a man who was just really causing me problems professionally. I'm like, right, okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to be six foot four. Let's see how this goes down. Uh, wow. Because, you know, we are, you know, we have an animal nature and those things, uh, they play yep. out in kind of power dynamics of stuff. But fundamentally... You shouldn't have had to do anything. You shouldn't have had to lower your voice or wear a certain pair of trousers or a certain colour um, in order to be listened to. And and mm-hmm. Professor Beard does a is a good segue because Professor Beard does a good job of of asking that question. You know, how do we recognise female power when we see it? Um, and her kind of follow up is, well, do we even recognise female power? And she asks about the conventional definitions of power or knowledge or expertise or authority, what are those images of those things we carry around in our heads? And she has this hunch that they exclude women. And so she does this really fun experiment where she Googles for cartoon images of professors. And professor has a slightly different meaning in England to what it does in America. So she she Googles English professors. Mm. Uh, and what she found, and and it would have been great if it had been to her surprise, but it actually totally wasn't to her surprise, uh, was that endless images of men came back in the search. And out of the first hundred images she found when she Googled for a UK professor, only one was female. 
Um, mm-hmm. These are cartoon images. And the female professor that did come up was a Pokemon character. And <laughs> it, it didn't surprise her because even though mm-hmm. she is a professor, a professor at Cambridge of classics, um, she knew that, that she was familiar with that kind of preconception. She mm-hmm. kind of had the same sort of feeling herself. It's just not the image of a professor uh, that we have. And this idea of, of a lack of a template for powerful women that, that we, can, we have, that we hold in our cultural Rolodex, in the stereotypes, the archetypes we have in our minds, um, I think it's one of the most powerful th- things for me that she looks at in, in the book. She says, we have no template for what a powerful woman looks like except that she looks rather like a man. The regulation trouser suits, or at least the trousers worn by so many Western female political leaders from Angela Merkel to Hillary Clinton, may be convenient and practical. They may be a signal of the refusal to become a clothes horse, which is a fate of so many polit- political wives. But they are also a simple tactic, like lowering the timbre of the voice, to make the female appear more male, to fit the part of power. Women in power are seen as breaking down barriers or alternatively as taking something to which they are not quite entitled. And she does a brilliant job of showing you what this looks like in the ancient world with uh, the myth of Medusa, who in at least one version of the story was a beautiful woman raped by Poseidon in a temple of Athena. And then as a punishment to her, who had been raped, She was transformed into a monstrous creature with this deadly capacity to turn anyone who looked at her face to stone. And in the end, the hero, Perseus, kills her and he cuts her head off using his shiny shield as a mirror so he doesn't have to look directly at her. Uh, And as Professor Beard says, the head of Medusa was one of the most potent ancient symbols of male mastery over the destructive powers of the very possibility of female power. The destructive powers of the very possibility of female power. And this is one of those places where you sort of think, yeah, that's amazing, Professor Mm B. Wow, I'd never seen that in classical literature. And then she Mm -hmm. goes on to show you how it is relevant to today. And she shows you how um, a version of this myth, which was painted by Caravaggio in 1598, it's very famous. I think there's going to be a picture of it on the website that you can go and check. Yes, out. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. Um, right. This image of of this woman with this snaky locks and her head's been cut off, so it's just the head with the snaky locks, recurs over and over and over again, right up until the present day, as a symbol of opposition to women in power. So. Angela Merkel's faces have been superimposed on this painting over and over again. Hillary Clinton with Trump's face superimposed on the body of Perseus and Hillary's face superimposed on the face of the Medusa. Uh, It made it into T-shirts, into tank tops, into coffee mugs, tote bags. There it is. It's the ancient world and it's embedded right in our own. And it insists that women must be excluded from power because they're really dangerous and a woman in power is a monster. And you have to defeat her, even if she tries to take part. It's really, go to the website and check it out. Mm-hmm. It, it really, I saw something which I'd never seen as clearly before when I saw those images. Yeah. 
I agree. I found it so disturbing. I really paused and put the book down and, and I spent a long time actually looking at those images. So yeah, you can see it on the website or on our Facebook or our Instagram, um, where we have all of those supplemental visual images that kind of enrich the discussion whenever we talk about art. But I think, yeah, I, I was, I was really, really deeply disturbed by that and saw, saw that myth that I've known since I was, you know, a little kid, like all of us in a really different way. And that really disturbing resonance that it has today. And I think that's, that's one of the most powerful reasons why we need more women in politics. And I, and I, I had so much, you know, respect and admiration for Hillary Clinton and Angela Merkel and for Professor Beard for just being strong enough and courageous enough to just keep standing, right? I mean, despite all of that abuse and to just keep putting themselves in the public sphere despite just um, just that despicable treatment. So Professor Beard develops this idea more about th that we do need more women in politics. And, and she talks about how... Um, it's really important and great to have, you know, more focus on quote unquote women's issues, right? Like childcare and equal pay. But then the question is that we've asked on lots of episodes before this too, like <laughs> the next step is to not consider these women's issues, but rather human issues, right? Because these are issues that impact everyone. This is how, this is how human life continues right through families and that at, that fathers should be equally interested in these ideas. It's not just for women. So she says, quote, the reasons and she meaning the reasons for women to be in politics, the reasons are much more basic. It is flagrantly unjust to keep women out by whatever unconscious means we do so. And we simply cannot afford to do without women's expertise, whether it is in technology, the economy or social care. If that means fewer men get into the legislature, as it must do, social change always has its losers as well as winners. I'm happy to look those men in the eye. End quote. Uh, <laughs> I so love that. Part, that. I love that phrase. <laughs> I love it too, but I had such mixed feelings about it. I I felt a little nervous loving that phrase because I I guess I I, I tend to be so concerned about not hurting people's feelings. I think that's just my personality. And I have been so careful trying to not alienate men and not offend men. Um, again, because of my nature and not wanting to hurt people, but um, also having been so trained in in being a good girl within the patriarchy. I mean, I'm uh, to, to be completely honest, I know that that's something I'm battling, but I also just really don't want to hurt people. Also, I, it, it's strategic, right? I, I want to recruit men. I want them to feel involved and invested in this, in this cause. And I also don't believe that it has to be a zero sum game. And so I, I just want to create a, um, I want men to have faith in abundance and not in scarcity that there's, you know, only a certain amount of thriving in the world and that if women get more then men will get less. Right. And so I'm always trying to reassure men that, that women's gain doesn't mean men's loss and it just means a better world for everyone. But so professor Beard saying that men may get, you know, fewer seats in the legislature, I guess that does point out the fact that there are certain contexts where there are, you know, a limited number of seats at the table and to get to equitable numbers, there will have to be a shift and that 
you know, men might feel upset that something that they thought was theirs, right, because it's always belonged to them, is being taken from them. And, you know, it reminded me of the quote that was kind of ubiquitous in the last um, year or so. And I and I tried to actually look it up and, and find out who to to whom to attribute it. And I couldn't find actually the author, but it, it says to, to people accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think that's true when the when the scale starts to even out. I mean, any shift feels like, well, wait, what's happening? Right. And 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 that was mine. So it's tricky for me. But and, and I still want to maintain my love and my compassion and my em- empathy for individual men. And I don't want it to be a zero sum game. But I, I'm actually thankful for Mary Beard. And just her strength in saying, I'm happy to look those men in the eye and to say, you know, systemically, things aren't right. And it is going to require that men do give some things up in order to make it a more just society and and that we can stand tall and say, yep, this needs to change. Thank you. And and not be so apologetic as I as I perhaps tend to be. I love all of that, Amy. You know, I think all of that's so important. I don't see this as some, I personally don't see this as some kind of battle in which we got to win. Mm. Um, I see it as a rebalancing. But, you know, at the same time, she doesn't say I'm happy for those men to lose out. She says, I'm happy to look those men in the eye. And, and I think that speaks to just a, a conception of we need to move towards something which is more just. Mm-hmm. and more fair this is not a it's not a battle of of dominance it, it it's a values based thing and i also personally i really truly believe that society benefits from that plurality of perspective and voice in policy making and not just policy making on how many hours women should be working or what age they can retire in england we always have a look because we have different um structures of state benefits or you know childcare hours or those things i i think women's voices in aspects of the economy not just aspects the economy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh in defense in in security in policy and i think you know we're half of the human race and i think it's important that those perspectives are represented i think I, I think it leads to better outcomes for everyone. So while I can see there's some real discomfort in the idea of losing out because men don't have as many seats in the legislature, I, I don't think it's about making it better for women. I honestly think it's about making it better for everyone. So maybe that helps me feel more at peace with it. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Louisa. This actually brings us to the end of the program today. So I'd like to wrap up by just asking you what one of the main takeaways will be for you from this book. Yeah. I mean, I think that that nagging feeling I had at the back of my mind, like, why is it that when I when I, in my life I've tried to, you know, do stuff, be successful, I've kind of thought, well, I should, you know, how do men do it? do it like that um it really helped me understand that what the discomfort was in that um so on a personal level I feel a bit enlightened about myself um but I think that relates to the broader issue of what we think power is and 
and how we think it can be exercised and how it's structured. And if we need to change what our conception of power is, because I think the conception of power that we have is a very, it's a hyper-masculine conception of power. It's the one voice not necessarily acknowledging other perspectives. It doesn't have that sense of collaboration and listening and sharing. We don't have those ideas in our idea of power. And so it seems to us impossible that power could encompass those things. And what Professor Beard points to is this just much deeper idea. I mean, I think going back to your very first podcast talking about how we're, you know, making the metaphor of a play and a stage set and the actors. And I think this is, for me, this is one of those places of, ah, this is a place where unless we change this, then we maybe we can change the actors and have more women on the stage, but maybe we don't really change anything. Maybe our understanding of power and its structures needs to be changed. And what she says, she's got a great quote. She says, you cannot easily fit women into a structure that is already coded as male. You have to change the structure. That means thinking about power differently, decoupling it from public prestige. It means thinking collaboratively about the power of followers, not just of leaders. It means, above all, thinking about power as an attribute or even a verb to power and not as a possession. What I have in mind is the ability to be effective, to make a difference in the world and the right to be taken seriously together as much as individually. It is power in that sense that many women feel they don't have and that they want. Uh, it's just, I, I don't quite know what that would look like. I don't think any of us know what that would look like because it's just beyond what we have. But I think as a challenge to the ways that we think about our lives, uh, both on the, you know, the bigger sense of the big power structures that we exist within, but also the smaller power structures, the more more day-to-day stuff, that idea that we might think differently about what power looks like and not just kind of go, do it like a man, Um, but be aware that we might be thinking, do it like a man, be aware that that when we think about power, we might have an idea of power which is coded as male and that there might be some benefits for everyone to making some effort to change that. I think that was a really big takeaway for me. Fabulous. Well, we will let we will leave it at that. That was a powerful way to wrap up and to summarize Professor Beard's message and insights. So I, I want to thank you again, Louisa. This was just really a powerful it was a powerful book and it was just um a lovely conversation. I learned so much from you and I'm so, so grateful to have you join well, me today. Thanks for being so here. So much from you. Thank you so much, Amy, for inviting me. And thank you to listeners for listening to this episode. Again, check out our website, our Instagram and Facebook is at Be Down Patriarchy. And we're excited about our next episode as well. It's another British feminist, Caroline Criado Perez. But shifting gears from the classical world to modern data collection systems, Perez's book is called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. It's a really eye-opening book, and it's one that I would recommend for everyone to read, perhaps even purchase, um, or or definitely check out from the library, but read the whole book. Um, And in fact, our author from our last episode, 
Angela Sini wrote this review of Invisible Women. She said it is, quote, a dossier on gender inequality that demands urgent action. The book makes clear that women aren't a minority. They are the majority. They are absolutely everywhere and always have been. Yet, as Criado Perez shows, women must live in a society built around men. From a lack of streetlights to allow us to feel safe to an absence of workplace childcare facilities, almost everything seems to have been designed for the average white working man and the average stay-at-home white woman. Her answer is to think again, to collect more data, study that data, and ask women what they want, end quote. So that's just a teaser. And so in the meantime, grab a copy of Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.